I'm Lana Ulrich, in-house counsel for the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Today, in our special Civil War and Reconstruction series, we uncover the life of Harriet Robinson Scott, the wife and co-plaintiff of Dred Scott in the infamous case Dred Scott versus Sanford. It was in this case that the Supreme Court held that African Americans were not citizens of the United States and couldn't sue in court. The divisive case greatly influenced the outcome of the next presidential election and the South's eventual secession from the Union, leading to the Civil War. Much is known about the outcome of the case itself, but little attention has been devoted to the actual people who brought this case before the court, Harriet Scott and her husband. Joining us today to discuss Mrs. Dred Scott are two leading Civil War historians. Leah Vanderveld is the Josephine R. Witt Chair at the University of Iowa College of Law. In 2011, she was a Guggenheim Fellow in Constitutional Studies. She is the author of Mrs. Dred Scott, A Life on Slavery's Frontier, a one-of-a-kind biography of Harriet Scott, as well as redemption songs, Suing for Freedom Before Dred Scott. Martha S. Jones is the Society of Black Alumni Presidential Professor and Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University. Her newest book is Birthright Citizens, A History of Race and Rice in Antebellum America. And she is also the author of All Bound Up Together, The Woman Question in African-American Public Culture from 1830 to 1900. She also appeared in the C-SPAN and National Constitution Center's Landmark Cases series, video on the Dred Scott decision. Lee and Martha, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Great, well Lee, let's start with you. You wrote this landmark biography of Mrs. Dred Scott. And most people are probably aware of the Dred Scott decision and what the court held. But less are probably aware of his wife Harriet Scott's involvement in the case and even less about her life and her story. Can you start by telling us perhaps why not much has been known about her involvement in the case, and in particular, the challenges of writing a biography of Harriet Scott, who was illiterate and didn't keep a diary or write letters or anything. So how are you able to piece together the various parts of her life? You know, just discovering her was the first step. I taught constitutional law for several years, And the Dred Scott case is frequently just a footnote. And when it's mentioned, it's hardly ever acknowledged that the lawsuit was not just about Dred, Dred, Ethel Dred Scott. It was also about his wife, Harriet, and their two daughters. It took further digging for me to discover that she was actually a plaintiff in the suit at the very same time, on the very same day that he filed his suit for freedom, there's a second suit filed by Harriet of color for her freedom as well. Harriet and Dred are man and wife suing together for freedom as a family in the St. Louis courts, courts where many other slaves had filed suits for freedom before them. But Harriet was unknown in part because so much of our history has focused on men as heroes and because she was Dred's wife and wives were frequently hidden under this cloak of coveture. And under this cloak of coveture, there might be someone there who was actually more active in the case 
than the husband and yet wouldn't be recognized because as a wife, her identity would be submerged in his. So discovering her meant lifting her from the shadows, but also bringing her to life in a way that would acknowledge her participation, which at every turn I discovered to be larger and larger. Great. And uh, Martha, so the book that Leah wrote starts off with Harriet Scott being transported to the Northwest Territory through Missouri. Can you tell us a little bit about the status of slavery in the territories at the time and what kind of context Harriet would have found herself in at that time period? Well, I think one of the most fascinating bits in Professor Vandeveld's book is our discovery through her research that Harriet has come from Pennsylvania. And so even before we talk about the status of slavery in the territories, it's important to remember that um, Harriet, the woman who becomes Harriet Scott, is coming from a state, from a jurisdiction where slavery itself is being extinguished. And so this is the, the sort of patchwork, uneven character of the nation in this period, one in which an individual, as they migrate through a lifetime, um, and of course this is at the heart of Dred Scott, can travel from the free state of Pennsylvania through slave states and into the territories that are going to be regulated by Congress and are going to be uh, territories in what we would call free soil territories, territories where slavery, Congress has barred slavery from intruding. So, Lee, can you tell us a little bit more about Harriet's life once she found herself in the Northwest Territory? She, her owner's Lawrence Tolliver, who is the U.S. Indian agent to the Sioux. And what was life like for her when she was living out there? Yes, she came to the frontier at 14 or younger. She was a woman who was always small of stature and her exact age was never known, but she could not have been older than 14 when she arrived on the frontier. Brought there by a rather remarkable man in his own capacity, Lawrence Tolliver. Now, Lawrence Tolliver is never known as the owner of Harriet Scott, until until I made the connection, Lawrence Tolliver is known as attempting to bring peace to an ongoing war between the Dakota and the Ojibwa. The Ojibwa have been pushed out of their woodland homes into the prairies, the traditional homes of the Dakota, and the increasing pressure in that area for limited resources, for land, for fur-bearing animals to be hunted for the traders has brought two native nations into conflict. It's Lawrence Tolliver's job to try to keep the peace. That's what Lawrence Tolliver is known for. And if you talk to people in Minnesota, that's the connection that they make with this locally famous name, Lawrence Tolliver. What's 
Dixon is that he brought 14 or more slaves to free territory to assist him because he needed domestic service. He needed people to help chopping the wood, feeding the animals, killing the chickens, cooking the dinners, making the beds, cleaning the house, doing the laundry. And so Harriet was brought to the frontier to a place that she couldn't have known to a new climate, to a new community, to a new landscape, and is living in a house at some distance from the protective walls of the fort at a time when the tensions between the resident peoples of the area, the Dakota and the Ojibwa, couldn't have been higher. It, it, was, it, must have been, um, it must have been an experience fraught with some, with some apprehension and some fear of the risks of the dangers all around her. So Martha, Lee mentioned that when she was brought there, she was actually brought to a free territory. Did that have any effect on her status as an enslaved person? Or what could she have just left at that point? I mean, what was her legal status then? It's a great question because the answer is it depends, right? That what we know is that certainly her presence in free territory gives Harriet the uh, the possibility, the option, the alternative to assert that she is now, in fact, a free person having resided on free soil. But part of the question turns on when and where she makes that assertion. In other words, she might assert it there in the Wisconsin Territory. She might assert it later on um, in Louisiana or in Missouri. And because slavery is what is termed a domestic institution or a state institution, each jurisdiction is going to have its own way of arbitrating that question. What we know, of course, is that she holds on to that claim until she returns to Missouri. And then, of course, we have the story of how that freedom suit plays out. So, Leah, can you tell us a little bit about how she meets her husband, Dredd, and the fact that they're actually married by Tolliver, uh, which is significant. So how did they meet, and why were they officially married? Well, Harriet is living in Tolliver's house for at least two years before Dredd comes on the scene. Dredd is brought to the forts as the servant of Dr. Emerson, who is going to be the new surgeon accompanying the regiment that is going to be stationed at the fort. And along with Dredd come other people in essentially his same situation. Enslaved men and women who have been brought there by other officers and will live in the fort just as he's living in the fort in the surgeon's quarters. At some point during that summer, Harriet and Dredd must have met each other because in that small community, just finding other people who spoke the language would have brought people together. Harriet must have been curious about the new people coming to the fort. It was a relatively lonely life to be living in this house with um, very few opportunities for contact with others. And so here comes Dredd. He is fond of horses. And his master has 
two very good forces. And dread is charged with exercising them, with grooming them. So she must have seen him for the first time while he was riding a horse on the outskirts of the fort. That's my, that's my speculation. At some point, however, winter will come. And as winter comes, the second winter, Tolliver decides to leave. Now, as Tolliver is leaving, he has to make some arrangements for the servants he's leaving behind, principally Harriet at this point, because I think he's going to be taking one of his other servants along with him back to Pennsylvania. But every person he takes back to Pennsylvania incurs an additional cost for him in terms of the steamboat passage. So what he decides to do is he decides to leave Harriet there, but to leave Harriet on the frontier without anyone would be to put her at even greater risk. This is the point at which he marries Dredd and Harriet to each other. He expresses the view that Dredd is quite happy with the arrangement and he says nothing of Harriet's feelings, but the fact that Harriet remains loyal to Dredd for many years suggests a very deep and a, a very deep attachment that they share. So at this point, Harriet is married to Dredd as something of a convenience to provide for her over the winter to allow her to move into the fort, which she otherwise would not be permitted to do, and to take up residency in the same quarters where Dredd is living, where the surgeon has his office and his rooms. This is their wedding, this is their marriage. And we know this because Tolliver later writes in his diary that he has married the two and lists them as in, in his list of several, several people that he officiates in marrying on the frontier. So after they're married, Martha, what are the what are the facts that give rise to this case, and where do they go from there? So the Scots are going to remain at Fort Snelling for a time. Um, they are going to be left there and hired out. That is, they will labor for the benefit of their owners. They will be called to Louisiana to follow their owners, and eventually as we know, make their way back, or for dread, make his way back, and Harriet her first time, to St. Louis. And what happens after they get back to St. Louis? Well, here they are in this extraordinary urban scene, um, first of all, with a city with not only many enslaved people, but former slaves, free African-Americans, a kind of, couldn't contrast, right, more starkly with a place like Fort Snelling, which was so isolated, this is the kind of setting in which one can perhaps for the first time think actively and critically about one's status, about one's ambitions for their lives, for the life of one's family. So St. Louis is a very stimulating place. We know that the Scots might want to purchase their own freedom and become autonomous and join the free black community of St. Louis. They're not successful. And they live under what is the circumstances for so many enslaved families, the ever-present 
threat of sale. They live pursuant to the whims, the needs, the demands of an owner who might in one period benefit from their labor by hiring them out, at another period benefit from their labor by having them work in a household or on a farm or a plantation, and at another period might mortgage them or use them as collateral for a loan, and even in another period determine that selling them away and perhaps away from one another is the what will suit best an owner's prerogative. And so, like so many enslaved people who bring freedom suits, it is this sort of crisis, right? Their inability to guarantee that they can remain together as a family, to secure that configuration, to secure their own household and their autonomy, and the threat of sale that undergirds then the initiation of a freedom suit. So, Leah, you've written about the these freedom suits, and Martha has as well, as she mentioned. So, the Dreads bring this suit, and and others had, others did so as well in St. Louis. What was what was the cause of action that they were claiming? Because obviously, this is pre, you know, Reconstruction amendments. What what did they claim in court? Well, Missouri had a remarkable statute which allowed people who were falsely held as slaves to sue for their freedom. What was remarkable about this statute, and I've not really found a counterpart anywhere else, uh, there's something similar in Louisiana, but it's not quite the same thing, is that if they decide to bring a lawsuit, the judge actually has to give them a lawyer, has to appoint a lawyer to advance their case. So Martha talks about this exciting, stimulating community of African-Americans living in St. Louis in all kinds of different statuses. But also in St. Louis, there are at least 30, maybe 50 people who have successfully used the courts in order to establish their freedom, who've gone before. Because what the statute did is it provided a way for individuals who had come west in part by living north of the Mason-Dixon line living north of the Ohio River, to sue for their freedom, to get a lawyer, and to actually be declared free in the courts of a slave state, St. Louis. So as the Scots are looking around, they must have come into contact with others who had succeeded in exactly the pathway that they decided to pursue, to sue for freedom, to get their freedom established, so that they would be free from the threats, the uncertainty, the continual fear that must have concerned them that, that Professor Jones just mentioned. Fascinating. So Martha, take us through the case a little bit. Who, who, do they, who do the Scots have representing them in court, and how does the case play out at the lower levels? So it's an important I think the dimension of this case and others like it that is overlooked, which is to say that there are attorneys, um, not just any lawyers, but sympathetic lawyers, lawyers who share a strain of anti-slavery thought for whom the Scots represent an opportunity to submit slavery to the rule of law, to bring the institution into the courthouse and to subject it to a kind of 
exacting review, which is precisely what the freedom suit represents. So all throughout their case, the Scots are going to be represented by able and even more able counsel, well-connected lawyers, both to the judiciary and the legal community more generally. And we can appreciate the ways in which, to an important degree, they really receive the best that lawyering has to offer under those circumstances. I think we expect sometimes that lawyers would be adverse to representing enslaved people or former slaves, but it turns out in many cities in particular throughout the South, this is part of an ordinary practice. So the Scots will bring their first freedom suit and it will fail very quickly on a technicality. They will file again And again, a a part of the case that's oftentimes overlooked is that they will win at trial. They will actually have their claims heard by a jury, their claim, their free soil claim arbitrated by a trial court, and they will win only to have then their owners bring that, appeal that decision to the high court in the state of Missouri. And this is where we really see the ways in which, as Professor Vanderbilt suggested, what had been a, I think, a reasonable, more than reasonable expectation that the Scots might have won their case, the Missouri Supreme Court is, in essence, changing its view of how it should think about cases like freedom suits like that of the Scots, and they are caught in this rethinking of Missouri as um, not o- as rather than its own standalone jurisdiction around slavery, Missouri as being woven into the the tensions that are really developing throughout the country. Missouri really looking to rather than allow for the possibility and the liberal possibility of manumission now is prepared to close the door on the kind of free soil claim that the Scots have the Scots have put forward. So they will not prevail ultimately before the Missouri Supreme Court, which of course is going to lead them to bring their case in federal court. Mm-hmm. I would like to add something here just to carry this along. And that's that one of the interesting things about the freedom suits is that there are numerous slaves who are still enslaved, technically enslaved, but they're able to hire themselves out and to move fairly freely around St. Louis to do so. So some of the suits that are brought for freedom have the petitioners in the quandary of who is my owner? Who do I sue? who do I name as the person who is enslaving me? And to name the wrong person is, of course, to have your suit thrown out. The way that this affects the Scots is that Dr. Emerson has died. His wife is looking for a new husband. She ends up marrying a new husband and moving off to Massachusetts. And the question is, who is is their owner? The estate was being administered first by the wife's father and then by the wife's brother. And it's Sanford who ends up being the person to sue. The great misfortune here is that John F.A. Sanford, the man that they sue, 
is connected to the Chateau family who have the greatest to gain from having the law changed. They had brought more slaves to free territory and lost more lawsuits than any other family. They had opposed the lawsuits and continued to oppose the lawsuits, sometimes kidnapping individuals who brought lawsuits and hustling them onto boats to head south. And here is John F.A. Sanford, who's actually at this point something of a New York and Washington lobbyist who has the putative opportunity to appeal the suits to the federal courts. Why does he do so? Much later, when asked that question, his sister says it's because of the chateaus. And it's only, it's actually quite remarkable to find that statement. It's in the New York Times. Uh, now that the New York Times is digitized and online, you can go back to the 1860s and find remarkable statements like that. That's so interesting. And Lee, you've also written about another fatal flaw in their lawsuit, and that's that the Scott's attorneys, as part of a joint stipulation, made dread the lead plaintiff instead of Harriet Scott. And you suggest that her claim may have been stronger. Um, can you just elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, in, in many ways, Harriet has this, this uh, distinction of having had her owner actually distance himself from her ownership. He leaves her in free territory. He says he has given her to a husband, which for all practical purposes means that he has abandoned his interest in her, making her claim even stronger than Dred's. But more particularly, if what's at stake here is the freedom of the entire family, that's going to depend on a decision that renders her free. Because under the law of slavery, the status of the children follow the status of the mother. Great. Martha, um, feel free to add to anything Leah has just said. And then can you take us um, back up to where you left off, which is now the cases before the Supreme Court? And... Tell us a little bit about the Supreme Court at the time, who was on it, you know, a little bit more about the justices, where did they come from, and, and what were their particular views on slavery? Sure. So I think that Professor Vandeveld has really um, put her finger on where I think a lot of us who rethink Dred Scott in our minds turn to, which is the differing claims among and between these family members. I think I'm right, Leah, am I not? At least one of their daughters is born in free territory. Harriet seems to have at least two, if not three, claims to freedom distinct from dread. And so I think we we do, upon reflection, wonder if there wasn't a missed opportunity. Now, I think it's important to recognize that it would not in all likelihood be consistent with the Scots' objectives in this case for Harriet and her daughters to be free and dread to remain enslaved. That is also a kind of violence to an enslaved family that is is hardly an ideal outcome. But yes, um, these missed opportunities, these missed sort of claims are a part of this story. So the Scots will come into the local federal court in St. Louis to renew their suit the suit is still going to be determined by way of Missouri law, 
but they will have another shot, if you will, by bringing their claim through the diversity jurisdiction provisions that permit plaintiffs who live in, reside in different states, citizens who live in different states, to use the federal courts. And this case will make its way to the U.S. Supreme Court after it fails in Missouri and will face a Supreme Court that I would say is eager to um, involve itself not only in questions about the future of slavery, but also in the political questions that flow from decisions about slavery's future, about slavery's expansion to the territories and the like, slavery's long-term possibilities. So in many ways, you have a court that is, yes, interested in the discrete claim of the Scots, but is going to use the Scots claim now to also try and steer the future of slavery more broadly. Roger Brooke Taney is the chief justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. When the case is argued, he's been chief justice for nearly um, 20 years by the time we hear this case. And there's little question but that Taney speaks for the majority of the court when he speaks with a a pro-slavery voice in its most ambitious sense. And still, this is a court that is not unanimous about the questions that the case we call Dred Scott comes to put before it. And the court will split seven to two not as a reflection of a split around the question of slavery or its future per se, but in particular around the fine points of who will control what body, what entities will control the future of slavery and determine the future of slavery, especially in the territories. And this is a court that will split in part over the status not of slaves or enslaved people, but over the status of former slaves or free African Americans before the Constitution. These are the issues that will divide this court. Mm -hmm. Frederick, uh, I was just going to add that Mm -hmm. Francis Murdoch, who was the first lawyer to file suit, actually the the person who who filed for them and who who then leaves them as many lawyers through a kind of revolving door did, Francis Murdoch goes off to California to become a journalist, and his view is that the Supreme Court decided as it did because their ears were stuffed with cotton. The meaning was that the justices all were slaveholders, had slaveholding interests in the South, that's probably not true of Curtis, but that the influence that the South had on the justices was profound. That's how he explains the decision in the Dred Scott case. So, Lee, how did the Scots react when they got the news that the court had ruled against them? Well, you know, 
Um, by this point, there's a telegraph. And so the, the news can travel relatively quickly. They are back in St. Louis. They have achieved this notoriety, which for people in their situation was probably a kind of uncomfortable position to be in. And when they learn that they lose, I'm sure they must have been, they must have been quite dejected. One thing that they had done is that fearing the possibility that they would lose, they had sent their daughters into hiding. Two years before the court was to decide the Dred Scott case at the level of the Supreme Court, they sent their daughters into hiding. It wasn't clear where their daughters were. And to be in hiding was probably the safest place for them to be. One of the individuals who was the most surprised at this decision is actually the fact that their ownership had devolved upon a Massachusetts congressman who was an abolitionist and part of the Free Soil Party. And all of a sudden he discovers that he is the legal owner, having married Mrs. Anderson's wife, that he's actually the legal owner of, of slaves in this most famous suit back in Missouri. Sanford, the name plaintiff, had gone mad by this point and was incarcerated in an institution where he would remain for the rest of his life. But this Massachusetts congressman has now the embarrassment that he has profited by slavery, something that certainly would embarrass him to his constituents. And he hastily figured out a way to transfer them back to someone in Missouri who could exercise manumission papers for them. So eventually they're manumitted, but they're manumitted by the embarrassment of a Massachusetts congressman rather than by the courts of law. Wow. And I mean, it, it just speaks to their fortitude that the case took, I think it was the, almost 11 years yes. for, the, for it to be resolved. But, and with eventual, as you said, favorable outcome, but not, but not from the court itself, unfortunately. So, Mark. No, and I, I sorry, I, I just would say, and I think that um, that chilling uh, detail that uh, Professor Vanderbilt shared, right, which is um, the Scots put the girls into hiding. Um, I always wanted to ask you, Leah, if you thought that they were prepared to defy the court in the end. Um, and to secret the girls away permanently if it looked as if they would be otherwise subject to sale and separation from their parents. It's such a dramatic detail to me. Yeah, yes, it is. It is. Um, where does one hide? Mm. Uh, I, think that, uh, that I, I think that that's a hard question. Um, one would think that you could cross the river to Illinois, but Illinois is really not that much on board with freedom at that time. They're indenturing African-Americans who are brought into Illinois. They're requiring African-Americans who voluntarily enter Illinois to post enormous bonds. And they are uh, harboring all kinds of uh, bounty hunters from the South mm. 
who are coming to Illinois to look for fugitive slaves. So where they hide them, it might actually be easier to hide them in plain sight, uh, where they could at least be in touch with them. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, Martha, we've talked a little bit about the Scots and their reaction and their dejection, uh, obviously, at losing the case. Was there a regional or a national reaction to the decision as well? Sure. Um, There's much anticipation of the Dred Scott decision, and we can open the pages of any period newspaper from this time and recognize that in many parts of the nation, particularly in slaveholding jurisdictions, but really throughout the country, Dred Scott is much anticipated. And so the reaction is swift, in some cases premature, which is to say there's a lot of uh, immediate talk about how Justice Taney and the court have settled not only the status of the Scots, which turns out to not be true. There's also talk about how the court has settled the status of free African-Americans, which it had not. And there's talk about how the court had settled the question of slavery going forward and its expansion, which, of course, was not true either. So there's a lot riding for people on Dred Scott and justice swiftly there is profound criticism. The criticism rooted in those who just on the face uh, oppose the conclusions of the court and those who critique the court's overreaching. And once the Supreme Court, as it does, concludes that Dred Scott as a slave, as an African-American, is not a citizen of the United States and is thus barred from bringing suit in federal court, many commentators will suggest that's where the court should have ended its analysis. But instead, the court goes on to invalidate the Missouri Compromise to, in essence, bar Congress from regulating slavery in the territories and then reaches into the lives of free African-Americans, North and South and West, to declare that they too are non-citizens and hence barred from the privileges of citizenship as provided for by the U.S. Constitution. So there's a great deal of commentary coming from African-American activists, coming from anti-slavery activists, but also coming from legal minds who are following the court, and in particular light on Justice Taney, to suggest that he has overreached, that he has really breached the bounds of uh, propriety in Dred Scott. And this criticism stings um, in uh, Justice Tawney's mind. He watches as some federal uh, trial courts find a way around Dred Scott. Justice McLean sits in Illinois and goes so far as to split hairs and say, well, Dred Scott really only applies to people of African descent who are descended from slaves. If you're a person of of African descent and you're free and descended from free people, you are a citizen of the United States. So there's a lot of hair splitting that goes on. Um, State courts, when they are asked to interpret the meaning of citizen of the United States, also turn away almost universally from Dred Scott and decide again that they can split hairs with the decision and distinguish 
the Dred Scott fact from the facts before them and conclude that people of African descent can be citizens. So there is this resistance that emerges almost immediately in the wake of Dred Scott, the kinds of claims to citizenship in particular that former slaves have been making for many decades preceding Dred Scott continue apace and really do not abate in the wake of the decision, so much so that Justice Taney is deeply disappointed. He will reflect upon this in his private writings and even go so far as to pen a supplemental or second Dred Scott opinion where he re-argues the case and he hopes, as he says in his correspondence, he hopes for the opportunity to be able to, um, again, make the argument that no person of African descent can be a citizen of the United States. Lee, so the case obviously now stands in infamy in constitutional law, but it was, in fact, eventually overturned by an amendment, the 14th Amendment. And I think you've you've mentioned in your work as well this idea of, I think it's either reconstruction or the reaction as Dred Scott-itis and the amendment as, as attempting to correct that. Can you talk a little bit about that, the road to the 14th Amendment and how it directly overturned the Dred Scott decision? Well, the Dred Scott decision was clearly on the minds of the Reconstruction Congress. The 13th Amendment abolishes slavery and involuntary servitude. Starting with that, that's actually one of the bases on which the litigants in St. Louis would always sue to assert their freedom. And so the 13th Amendment uh, is is kind of a, a, a congressional in-your-face reaction to the Dred Scott case by taking the Northwest Ordinance language, which has been declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, and writing it into law, writing it into the Constitution. That's the 13th Amendment. But the 13th Amendment is followed quite quickly, within a year, by the 14th Amendment, which makes it even more particular that the Congress is addressing the Dred Scott decision. I've actually rendered the Congressional Globe into a digital form. And in a period of four months, the Dred Scott case was mentioned 85 times by members of Congress, uh, which which I think uh, pretty clearly suggests that it was on their mind. By the first clause, of the 14th Amendment, there's a declaration that anyone born in the United States or jurisdictions thereof is a citizen of the United States, which is a second slap at the Supreme Court's decision in Dred Scott by making it quite clear that citizenship now is national. Now, I think that this would be a perfect place to turn to Professor Jones. (laughs) Martha. Thank you, Lee. Martha, we're eager for your thoughts as well. (laughs) So, um, yes, right? Former slaves are, um, have made it plain, right, that um, as Washington begins to anticipate the abolition of slavery, the 
the question about the status then of former slaves. The 13th Amendment um, self-consciously does not answer the question about the relationship of former slaves to the body politic. And the 14th Amendment, first the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which makes birthright citizenship federal law in the United States, and then the 14th Amendment ratified in 1868. These are, in essence, the overturning of Dred Scott and the declaration that all persons, including former slaves born in the United States, are citizens of the United States. Before we close, I, I'll ask a final question, but I guess now I'll just ask if there's anything else that you want to add to you know, either discussion of the case or, or the discussion of Harriet Scott. Mm. So I, I would want to go back and really um, you know, add a kind of an appreciation for Leah's book. Mrs. Dred Scott is part of a, an important, really revolutionary moment in the history of uh, writing about African-American women. Um, Mrs. Dred Scott exists on my shelf alongside the biographies of uh, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman, Harriet Jacobs, Sally Hemings, right? This, this realization, this possibility, this insistence, right, by really dogged historians who are going to recover the lives of enslaved women that we had too long been told were not accessible to us by way of the archive. And so it really exists as part of a, a kind of pantheon on my shelf, evidence that we can do this kind of work for these remarkable women that I've mentioned, but for many others as well. Absolutely. And here at the Constitution Center, through our new exhibit and through this podcast series as well, we, we hope to highlight the lives of of not only Mrs. Dred Scott, but others like Callie House and and other untold heroes as well. Um, yeah. So, so Leah, I I'd like to add just one one thing sure. to that, mm-hmm. and, and uh, I'm honored uh, to be thought of in the in in connection with the works on those other remarkable biographies. The the one point that I want to make in terms of the Constitution is that we need to think about the Dred Scott case as an attempt to assert a right of a family, of parenting, of a mother and of a father to hold their children dear. That's not something that we generally associate with a constitutional moment But in fact, that appears to be the thing that kept them going to bring this case. So when the Dred Scott case is overturned by the 13th and 14th Amendments to the Constitution, I think we should understand that this is where we see a right to family integrity as entering the Constitution whether it's framed in that language or not, it was the animating drive, in my opinion. That kind of freedom is a freedom that um, the Constitution holds dear. Absolutely. So, Leah, I'll, I'll, 
I'll pose the final question starting with you, and perhaps your answer might be similar, but uh, I'll let you answer as as you like. Uh, what's the most important thing that people should learn from Harriet Scott's story, and why should they learn about her in the Dred Scott case? Well, I think there are probably three things here. One is, is simply to, to realize that our history has been the history of men, and that it's important to do the kind of history that complements the stories of men with the stories of women. And particularly when the person is also enslaved, it's so easy for that person's life to be lost, even though that person can be part of the animation of a constitutional moment. The second thing is that this is a mother who is striving to preserve her daughters and her husband is similarly striving to preserve the children. But when you read the interview with the Scots done by Frank Leslie's newspaper journalist, you see what a strong woman Harriet was in her answers to the questions. What she wanted is she wanted to be left alone to raise her children as she saw fit. And I think we have to continue to keep that in mind, whatever century we live in. Martha, I'd like to ask the same question to you. What, what do you think is the most important thing people should take away from Harriet's story and from the Dred Scott case? I think the first lesson is that it is possible to know the life of someone like Harriet Scott, right? that Professor Vandervelle's research is so instructive in part because I, as someone who's spent many years now as an African-American women's historian, have certainly had more than my share of moments in doing research where I'm told by a thoughtful but mistaken librarian or archivist that there's nothing there, that this history can't be written. So the first thing is that this history can be written, and it can be written with the kind of ambition that gives us um, a biography like Mrs. Dred Scott. The second is that the experiences of men, enslaved men, through important and groundbreaking work, have too often stood in for the whole. And what the focus on Harriet Scott does for us is help us turn quite expressly to questions about intimate relations, marriage, family, children, and these sorts of interests, which are very much um, a part of our necessary part of our understanding of the, not only the institution of slavery and its violences, but also the kinds of considerations, the kinds of concerns that help us understand the decisions that enslaved people are making, including the decision to bring a freedom suit, as the Scots ultimately do. The last thing I'll say uh, goes back to this really poignant fact that Professor Vandervelde reminded us of, which is the Scots placing their daughters in hiding during some part of the, while the freedom suits are pending. And 
for me, that's always been an opening to appreciating the um, unique risks, the unique challenges that faced women and especially young women who were enslaved. What were the Scots thinking as they imagined, as they anticipated, as they feared that they might be not only separated from their daughters, but their daughters might be sold? It's a reminder that sexual violence is an integral part of that story told to us by companions to the Scots, if you will, like Harriet Jacobs, like Sally Hemings, that sexual exploitation was a special uh, dimension of this experience for women. And I've always been moved by the notion that the Scots would go to extraordinary lengths to protect their daughters, to try to protect their daughters from that sort of fate that certainly they would have confronted had they been sold away from their parents. Leah and Martha, thank you so much for joining me for this discussion on Mrs. Dred Scott, on the Dred Scott case, and on this important constitutional story. It's certainly been a pleasure telling this story with Professor Jones. It's so much fun to tell the story together. Yeah, thank you very much. Today's show was engineered by Dave Stutz and produced by Madison Poulter and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Apoorva Krishnan. We the People listeners, if you like this podcast, rate us on iTunes, tell your friends, and write to us at podcast at constitutioncenter.org. Finally, the Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Lana Ulrich.